First John, we're diving into this book. Last week, Will got us started. Let me just say, uh, bless God for Will. I mean, seriously, uh, that, that does not just grow on a tree. And um, <laughs> that's a real, he's a real gift to our church. Hopefully, uh, you guys have already do- uh, been reading this because if you think you're going to learn First John by just hearing a couple sermons, you're not. And uh, as we step into this, hopefully this is now what you're digesting throughout the week. Uh, but we've come to uh, chapter 2. Chapter 1, we'll ask the question, who is Jesus and why does Jesus matter? And I think the answer is in verse 4 of 1. To make our joy complete. That's why Jesus matters. Uh, He came for our joy. Now, today we're going to push deeper into the heart of this letter. And it's going to deal really with this question. How do we know that we know that we know him? How do we really know and have the assurance that we belong to him? 1 John chapter 2. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. I'm going to start with verse 3. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what, the, what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, and love for God is truly made complete in them, this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to be in him must walk as Jesus walked. And then I'm only going to skip the next verses because those next verses are really for next time. Go down to verse 15. Spelling out how Jesus walked. Boy, did he walk out these verses. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, These things do not come from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. This is our text for today. You may be seated. Probably the most asked question I get as a pastor is, how can I really know that I know him, or how can I have the assurance that that, that I belong to God, that I'm a Christian. And I think John just pretty simply answers the question here, doesn't he? Look at verse 3. Don't listen to me read it. I want your eyes to fall on this. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Sum that, that up in one word. Obedience. Keeping his commands, obedience, is the deal. It's the whole deal. 
And John isn't alone in this. I mean, who did John learn this from? His rabbi, Jesus. Jesus said, if you love me, then you will do what I command you to do. If you love me, you obey me. Or Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, if you want to know how John really feels about this, uh, look at verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, that person is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. Are we hearing John, John loud and clear? Are you uncomfortable with this? I kind of am. I mean, this, this uh, definitely leaves me a little bit uncomfortable. I think part of it is, is because I have been raised in the Western world, and the Western world is really good at separating knowing from doing. We're really good at separating our beliefs from our lifestyle. We're really good at making these things two separate entities. I mean, we can, we can separate these things to the point that our beliefs have very little effect on how we live. Now, I can't tell you how much this flies in the face of the Hebraic notion of faith. Because if you ask a Jew what they believe, they will simply say, well, just look at my life. Look at how I spend my time. Look at how I spend my money. Because how I live should spell out exactly to you what I believe. It's not just a talk. It's a walk. We could go to the book of James. James says, okay, you say you have faith. Well, show me your life. Show me your walk. Show me how this whole thing gets walked out. And that's why I think verse 6 of chapter 2 may be the the thesis statement of the whole book. Look at at verse 6. And I'll read this as, as, it would, uh, as, it, as it should be translated. Whoever claims to be in him, in Christ, must walk as Jesus walked. See, Jesus didn't just die a life-changing, world-changing death, but he also lived a revolutionary, life-changing life he showed us how to live life to the full. He showed us how to walk. How many of you have uh, seen the, the movie Dead Poet Society? Come on, at least, okay, good, good. In my day, that was one of my favorite movies, kind of become a little bit of a cult classic these days. Um, Dead Poet Society, of course, is this movie that's set in this prestigious all-boys school where the highest value of the school is conformity to tradition. But this rogue teacher, played by Robin Williams, shows up. And he basically tells these students uh, to be true to themselves. That's the highest value. You have to know yourself. You have to be true to yourself. In fact, there's this one scene where he takes all his students outside of the classroom, which in and of itself was, was really outside the box, takes them to the courtyard, and then he says, walk. 
and he wants them to walk. And what he first reveals to them is how they just walk in conformity to everyone around them. But then he kind of presses them, no, you need to find a walk that's true to you. And I think this is the tension that many of us feel in this world. Uh, when, when we ask ourselves, how is it that we're supposed to walk this out? Is it just something that's in conformity to standards and traditions? Or, or, or do I get to walk in a way that's true to me? And we feel the tension of that. But see, neither of these, these things is what the Bible is calling us to. It's the last scene in the movie that I think captures what the Bible calls us to because this rogue professor, Robin Williams, eventually gets fired uh, because he's so rogue and um, yet he's had a profound impact on these students' lives. And of course, he comes in that last scene, they're in the classroom, he has to get his belongings, he's passing all these students, some of them are all choked up, one in particular, it's like he just wants to explode because of the impact he's had on his life, and then the the teacher walks past him, he almost has tears in his eyes, doesn't know what to say or do, the teacher finally gets out of the room, and all the student can do, do you remember the scene? He gets and he climbs on top of his desk. And he says, Captain, my captain. That's what this whole thing is about. It's looking at Jesus and saying, Captain, oh, you're my captain. And it's having this this ache in our hearts because of the profound impact that he's had in our life. This this ache to know him, to walk with him, to walk like him, to become like him, to walk his path. It's a walk. It's that picture right there. In fact, this is why I love to take people to Israel. So they can know that they have a captain, a shepherd. And that this whole thing is about knowing the shepherd who loves us and cares for us. And our job is just to be like those sheep and and, and just to follow him and to walk the way that he walks and and to walk the path that, that, that Christ lays out. I mean, the whole call to discipleship, come follow me. Literally, it's luck like a rye. It's, it's, it's walk after me. It's that. That's discipleship. It's walking after Christ. It's a walk. Are you walking his walk? Do you walk like him? Because John has the audacity to say here, if you're not walking as Jesus walked, then you're probably not in him. Now, in light of all this, we should be asking a pretty obvious question. If walking is such a big deal, what question should we ask? What does this walk look like? And how do I know if it's this path or if it's this path? And see, this is where John wants to answer this question. Look at verses 4 and 5. He says, whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person, but anyone who obeys his word, um, love for God is truly made complete in that person. Truth. 
And he connects truth with God's word. See, it's there where we find the Christ we are to follow. That's where we find the path laid out for us. That's why we should saturate ourselves in this word. Because this is where Christ is. This is where we find our shepherd. This is where the path that that he's walked is, is spelled out for us. And I'll even make it more specific. I think we ought to be reading the Gospels regularly. I think we ought to be even reading the Sermon on the Mount weekly. Because that just spells out how Jesus walked in the path that you and I are called to walk. Now, in this chapter, John is going to um, highlight two characterizations of the unique way in which Jesus walked on this earth. First of all, his walk was marked by love for people. We're going to handle that next time. His walk was also marked by this unique relationship that Jesus had with the world. So let's look at that. Turn to uh, verses 15 through 17. And this, first of all, spells out Jesus' walk. And then, of course, it spells out how we are to walk like him. Um, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Now, right out of the gates, there almost seems to be something that contradicts itself here. Do you know what it is? Do not love the world. What's maybe one of the most famous verses in the Bible, also written down by John? For God so loved the world. In fact, the word so is, means in the manner. He loved the world in such a manner that he gave us his only son. That's how much he loved the world. And now John says, wait, don't love the world. Well, that's because world can have different meanings. And see, what most of us think when we think of this word world, especially when we read it in this verse, is we we probably think of the physical material universe. And then our, our, our hearts quickly say when we come to a verse like this that, yep, we are not to love the world. We are not to love material things. We are not to love physical things as opposed to spiritual. That's what we're to love. And see, this is where we need to be really careful because if we read it that way, we end up being just really good Platonists and not good Christians. Because when we divide this world into the material and the spiritual, in John's day, this is called Gnosticism. It's one of the very things that John is trying to confront. Today we might call it something like Platonic dualism because Plato's conception of reality won the West. And right now you might be thinking to yourself, I have no idea who Plato is. I don't understand his conception of things. But I can tell you right now, I guarantee you, because we live in the West, that most of you think in the way that he taught us to think. Because what he did is he divided the world into material and spiritual, into these two realities. He taught that that a good God created the spiritual world and an evil God or a demon created the material physical world. 
And therefore, if you just apply this conception of things just to you, what this means then is that your, your good you is your spiritual you, your soul, and that it's trapped in this bad you, the material, physical you, your body. And see, this is why for the Gnostic, spirituality is oftentimes monastic. It's all about escape. It's about escaping, first of all, this bad material world and material things like food, money, sex, sports, the arts, politics. Because all these things we understand to be material and physical and inherently evil. This is why also for the Gnostic, not only is spirituality about escaping the world, but it's also, it's ascetic. It's about escaping my body. That's why the spirituality to the Gnostic involves the harsh treatment of the body because the body is the prison uh, to my soul and I need to beat it up and I need to starve it with the hope that someday I'll be saved. And when I'm saved, that salvation that will finally come, my soul will fly away to heaven in this disembodied place. I know some of you right now are thinking, wait a second, isn't that what the Bible teaches? Absolutely not. The Bible teaches that for God so loves the world, not just our souls. And he loves the people of the world and he loves the plant and trees of the world and the mountains and the streams and the lakes. He loves the city. He loves the country. He created it all. And he's going to redeem it all. And just think about how God is going to redeem it. He didn't just come down here and take on a soul. He took on a body, flesh and blood. And think about the resurrection, which is his stake in the ground. This is what's going to happen to us. He's not going to just raise our soul, just like he didn't just raise Jesus' soul. He raised his body. And what we see God doing in Jesus at the resurrection is what God is going to do for us and what God is going to do for all creation. In fact, I love that whole scene in uh, Luke 24 after the resurrection. (laughs) These guys are uh, seeing Jesus and they say, oh, it's a ghost. And Jesus says, I'm not a ghost. I'm flesh and blood. Look at my wounds. Put your hand, put your fingers in them. And he says something kind of funny. He says, hey, give me a fish. And he ate a fish. Well, think about that. He ate a fish. Resurrected Jesus ate a fish. I mean, think about all the implications of that. Now, here are some signs that you're Gnostic or been tainted with this dualism. You think Christians don't really need to care about the environment or concern themselves with community development or or repairing broken neighborhoods or even politics because all God really cares about is saving souls. That's Gnosticism. That's not the gospel. Don't rip Genesis 1 out of the Bible. The whole creation mandate, the charge that he gave to Adam and Eve is still our charge today, which I want you to rule and subdue this entire creation. I want you to take care of it. I want you to love it the way I love it. 
Gnostics see sex as dirty. And the reason they see sex as dirty because it's the body, and because it's the body and physical, it's bad. But then I stop, and all you have to ask, who created sex? God created sex. And who made our bodies for sex? God made our bodies for sex. And God also put sex in a specific place in marriage. But sex isn't what's bad and and, and defiling. It's us abusing it, taking it out of its place. Gnostics see clergy, they see pastors, and they see priests as, as more spiritual than normal people. Well, I break that paradigm, don't I? I mean, don't do that. Don't. Do I need my dad to get up here right now and, and, and talk about how I'm <laughs> just like all of you guys? Chief of sinners. I like that. Do it. <laughs> Gnostics see church work. Or full-time ministry as, as being higher or better than a secular profession. That's Gnosticism. This is actually a, a place where my dad and I dis- disagree, which, sorry, Dad, I'm doing this to you this morning, that I'm exposing your Gnosticism. Um, <laughs> but I one time, I, you know, I coach football, and... Uh, I'm convinced of this. I, I, I said, Dad, I believe that coaching football is every bit as spiritual as preaching sermons. I know the impact I have on those 40 kids is greater than anything I'm having right now. You're a Gnostic if you, if you see your private quiet time as somehow being more spiritual than loving your neighbor. Or serving the poor. You're a Gnostic if you have trouble enjoying the physical world. Whether it be a great meal or a great movie or a great performance or a great sporting event. Because in your mind you're thinking to yourself, this stuff isn't spiritual. It's all carnal. Listen, that's Gnostic. That's not the Bible. And see, when we divide the the, the world in this way, what we're doing is we're extracting the truth of the gospel from its biblical context, and we're placing it in some Western form of thought. And it's not fair to God's word. Jesus did not retreat from this world. He incarnated himself in it because Jesus loves the world. He ate and drank with sinners. They called him a drunkard and a glutton, not because he was a drunkard and a glutton, but because he wasn't operating according to that framework. He was breaking the paradigm. Okay, so what does John mean by world if it's not the physical material world? What John is referring to here is the world system, the value system of the world. Better yet, it might be what we call worldliness. And what worldliness is, it's it's living as if the world is all there is. And if you want further definition of what John is, is referring to when he says world, just go down to verse 16 where he spells it out. He says the world is is 
When I talk world here, it's the lust of the flesh, it's the lust of the eyes, and it's the pride of life. This is worldliness. In fact, there's a very important word in verse 16 that I think gets at the heart of worldliness and at the heart of the problem of why we love the world so much. The word in my Bible is translated lust. It's there two times, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh. And then it's also in verse 17 where it says, and and its desires will pass away. It's the same word in Greek. And we need to know this word because this word is all over our New Testament. In fact, every time the New Testament talks about transformation and supernatural heart change, this word is the word that's used to describe what's most wrong with our hearts. See, this is where I'm so indebted to Tim Keller Because years ago, I heard Tim Keller preach a sermon on Colossians 3, and it busted all my paradigms about what I thought about what sin is. Because he said in this sermon, he said there is a psychology to sin. He said there's a complexity to sin, that sin is deeper than just bad behaviors or just breaking the rules. He talked about the sin underneath the sin, the sin that can lie beneath both my bad behavior, and also the sin that can lie beneath my good behavior. And it's this word. See, this word describes what's most wrong with our hearts. It's the sin beneath uh, all of our sin. Now, the word, I think, you probably already read this, uh, it breaks down this way. Thumia is the root word. means desire. Then you see that word epi. Epi is just this word in Greek for uber, over. So epithumia is an uber or an over-desire, not necessarily for a bad thing. It could be for a good thing. But it's this inordinate desire for anything, either good or bad, which leads me to evil. It's when our hearts say, I must have that thing. See, and this is how sin works itself on our hearts. It's not that we necessarily want bad things. It's that we want things too badly. Because this is what our hearts are so good at doing. They're so good at taking a good thing and turning that good thing into an ultimate thing. And now we're in the Old Testament because now what we're talking about is idolatry. And John Calvin, I think, said it best when he said our hearts are like idol factories. They were were made for worship. Which is why if we're not worshiping the one we are made to worship, why we're constantly taking things like our jobs or a relationship or a sport or a pleasure or it could be our kids, could be something as small as a gadget, a hobby, a toy, a ministry. We take these things, we make them ultimate things to the point where we can't live without them, where we must have them. And then these things end up replacing God and they become the God that our hearts really worship. I want to show you a few other places where um, this is found in the Bible. Go to James 1. So if you're in John, it goes James, Peter, John. Work backward a little bit. Love the sound of those pages turning. Love it. Crossroads Bible Church, yeah. 
Okay, and uh, look at uh, James 1, verse 14. Here's the psychology of sin, if you want to know it, how it works. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full, full grown, gives birth to death. The word enticed there uh, would better translate as seduced. How are our hearts seduced? By what? Again, oftentimes this word is translated as evil desire, but it's epithumia. It's this inordinate desire that we have for anything evil or good that leads to evil. And see, then after our hearts have been seduced, uh, what happens? Well, there's a conception. After conception, there's a birth. There's a child. The child is what? Sin. But it doesn't stop. The child grows up. It gives birth to a grandchild. And the grandchild is what? Death. See, those are the far-reaching effects of sin, and this is how sin works on our hearts. Sin is not just breaking the rules. Sin, the Bible teaches, is seduction. It's having our hearts seduced by anything other than God, and that oftentimes is the sin beneath all sin. Think about Paul. I mean, Paul. In, in, in Philippians 3, he says, before I met Christ, he says, I was actually perfect when it came to keeping Torah. Wow, Paul, that's amazing that you thought that. Um, but here's the deal. I don't think he's being dishonest. I think Paul's thinking that, that he's blameless. I mean, I think he'd feel pretty good about himself as a rule-keeping Pharisee, partly because he never heard Jesus preach. I mean, you've heard it was said this, but let me say to you. You know, and Jesus keeps doing that. He keeps pushing this down to um, our heart. But the other reason why I think Paul could really think this is because Paul never came to the point where he could see the sin underneath his perfect behavior. But see, in Romans 7, Paul says that there was one law that actually cut him to the heart and almost killed him. It's the command, do not covet. Now ask yourself, why this law? Why did this law so condemn him? Well, all the other laws are, are, are really quite behavioral. Paul could look at him and think, you know, I can keep these. I, I haven't killed anyone, and I haven't committed adultery, and I haven't told a lie, and I honor my parents. But this command to not covet exposed his heart. It exposed his motives, his pride, the, ung- the ugly, gross sin That was underneath his perfect behavior. Take a guess what the word covet, which is used several times in Romans 7, is in Greek. Epithumia. It's all over the New Testament. And this epithemia or this coveting, it's more than just wanting. It's this idolatrous wanting. It's wanting wanting something more than God. Coveting is, is, is really saying to God, God, you are not enough. I have to have this to be happy, and I need to get this to feel like I'm worth something, and I need to have these things in my life, and I need to accomplish this to feel secure. And see, this is why the Bible 
points all sin back to really idolatry, which is caused by coveting. It's the sin beneath all sin. It's the over-desires of our heart that produce these idols, and these idols then quickly take the place of God in our lives. In fact, if you've ever read 1 John, have you ever thought it strange to think about the last, the last sentence of this letter? Well, you can't look at it right now. Are you kidding me? If someone said that, I'd be going there so fast. Look at the last sentence of 1 John, 1 John 5. like, what's that doing there? It's the crux of the whole thing. Now, John, in in verses uh, 15 to 17, gives us three areas where we need to watch out for these over-desires, this epithemia. It's it's the over-desires, the epithemia of our eyes. It's the over-desires of our flesh. It's the over desires of our ego. And let me just start with the over-desires of our eye. Is there anything wrong with our eyes? Who made our eyes? That's obvious. Why did God make our eyes? So we could perceive beauty. So we could digest it and take it in. But here's the deal. When beauty and appearance go from just being a good thing to an ultimate thing, where I obsess and I crave over causing my eyes to behold things that I'm not supposed to behold or to be so consumed with appearances, whether it's my own appearance or the appearance of others, where it becomes the very thing I live for, I become a worldly person. I'm an idolater. And just think about our world right now. I mean, it's all about appearance. It's all about image. It's all what you look like. And Christians, of all people, are to be fiercely anti-appearance. As Christians, we don't put stock in appearances. We, we, we have the capacity to look beyond the appearance and, and, and at the deeper, more important, significant realities. A body for a Christian is just a body that's going to get old. A pretty face is just a pretty face. A good athlete is just a good athlete. I mean, stop and think about it. A good athlete is someone who can take a ball and put it in a rim. Or take a ball and get it to cross a line. I can't believe you're not laughing harder. (laughs) Think about how much time and energy that we invest in our kids just so they can learn how to put that ball in that rim better or get the ball to cross the line better than someone else. Sport's just a sport. Money's just money. A nice house is still just four walls. A Christian is not impressed with these things. We're not impressed with appearance. We're not impressed with with all the things our world is impressed with. And here's the deal. If we are, 
We're worldly. It's idolatry. Take our bodies. I mean, the potential for worldliness is, is, is huge here. Start with food. I mean, God made our bodies to, to take in food and to enjoy food. So there's really nothing wrong with food. But when I live for food, when I live to eat... I mean, we're finding a lot more these days about eating disorders and what they really are. I mean, an, an eating disorder is really just taking a good thing, food, and, and making it an ultimate thing. It's, it's where we use food to control life, where we use food to cope with life. Obesity. Obesity is just when I turn to food and I, I look for food to be my comfort. I look to food to be my satisfaction. What about drink? Drink is a good thing. <laughs> if you have a problem with that, you can talk to me afterward. Um, it's not an evil thing. But when you take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing, it leads to evil. Alcoholism is, is, is nothing more than taking a good thing and turning it into into an ultimate thing. It's when we use drink to deal with our pain or to avoid reality or to avoid responsibility. See, that's the sin underneath the sin of alcoholism. Sex. I mean, again, there's, no, there's nothing wrong with sex. God created sex. God made sex to be a, a good and beautiful thing within his context, in, in his place, in marriage. But when I live for, for sex and I can't exist without it, we're taking a good thing and, and making it an ultimate thing. Or take the pride of life. The ego, the self. I mean, the self per se, yes, it's, it, it, it is wrong and messed up in many ways. But, but God didn't make ourself uh, to be a bad thing. But when I live for myself and I can't get outside myself and I'm consumed with myself, it's idolatry. I mean, God made us in such a way for us to exert influence. But when, when, when I have to be in control and I have to have it my way all the time, and when I live for power and when I have this insatiable need to be noticed and to get applause, that's worldliness. I mean, think about all the good things, even the good things that we do for God, that you could see them and say, wow, that's good. But underneath that good is this hideous evil lurking. See, this is why if we're going to really change, it can't be just about treating the behavior because oftentimes it's under our best behaviors that the most hideous sin lurks. I mean, one thing I know, the older I get, I, I, I know this for a fact, that the most gross sin in my life is under what most of you would call righteousness. In fact, I've said this before, the most sinful time of the week for me can be right now. And yeah, it looks good. Rod's opening the book and he's explaining God's word to us and blah, blah, blah. But you have no idea sometimes the sin of pride. That's lurking beneath all of this. 
Thank you for putting up with me. Jesus smote the Pharisees and all their righteousness. He says you do this stuff for the applause of men. That's the pride of life. In fact, commentators uh, looked at, at these things, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, and, and they said there's an ascending order here with the pride of life being the granddaddy of all sins. Which is why Jesus could look at the Pharisees and all their good behavior, their giving, their praying, their fasting, and still say to those guys, you know what? The prostitutes and the scoundrels are entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. See, this is why we got to go deeper than just our, our behavior, and we have to look beneath either our good behavior or our bad behavior, beneath our rule-keeping or our rule-breaking. We have to ask ourselves, what lies beneath all of that? What motivates that? What is my heart really set on right now? What is it that I really love? How do I spend my time? How do I spend my money? All sin really does... Involve breaking the first commandment where God says, you shall have no other gods before me. Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with everything you have. And love your neighbors yourself. Does that describe your heart today? Not just your behavior, but does that describe what's really going on in your heart? How can our hearts be healed of all these over-desires that, that produce all this idolatry in our, in our life? Well, I think John gives us two things, and I'll, I'll wrap this up really quickly, but I want you to hear them because I think they're so important because at the end of the day, we don't want to just know our problem, do we? We, wanna, we want a prescription to our problem. We want to be healed. Look at verse 17. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Remember what I said worldliness really means? Worldliness is really living as if the world is all there is. That's not a Christian. A Christian doesn't live as if this world is all there is. A Christian is someone who believes in another world, a greater world that's yet to come. And, and, we, and therefore, we don't have our hearts set on this world because, as John tells us, this world as it is is passing away. I love what Peggy Noonan uh, wrote years ago. Um, she writes for the Wall Street Journal, but she, she says, I think we've lost the old knowledge that this life is overrated. We have lost somehow a sense of mystery about us, our purpose, our meaning, our role. Our ancestors believed in two worlds and understood this world to be a solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short one. But we are the first generation that actually expects to find happiness here on earth. And our search for it has actually caused such unhappiness. The reason, if you do not believe in another higher world, if you believe only in this world, if you believe that this is your only chance at happiness, if that is what you believe, then you're not just disappointed when this world does not give you measure for measure of its riches. You're left despairing. I think that's where so many of us are, but you know, 
we have the hope of another world, a fully redeemed world that is yet to come, a renewed earth, a renewed heavens, renewed life, renewed bodies. That's why in this life, we don't have to have the perfect life or the perfect family or the perfect home or the perfect job. In fact, we really shouldn't expect much from this life. And we shouldn't expect much in terms of comfort or money or applause or fame or any of that. And see, then when we find that our hearts are, are, are too attached to this world, we need to remind ourselves of what John is saying. This world as it is, is passing away with all of its desires. And if we throw our hearts too much into this world, we're just going to pass away with it. Are you passing away? What is it, says John, that lasts forever? The one who does the will of God which is more than behavior. That's my heart. Secondly, if we're going to be healed, look at verse 15. If anyone loves the world, love, change that preposition. Not love for, it should read, love of the Father is not in them. John is not speaking of our love towards the Father, but the Father's love for us. And if you want to know why your heart loves the world and the things of the world so much, is because you don't know the Father's love. See what worldliness is at the end of the day, it's just looking for God in all the wrong places. It's looking for love in all the wrong places. It's looking for satisfaction, for joy, our sense of worth and security in all the wrong places. We were made by our Father and for our Father and to know him and to know his love. And I know this about my heart. I know there's such a hole and an ache in my heart. And I have this theory. I think some people have a hole that's this big. Rod Van Salkum has a hole that's this big. I have an ache. And if I didn't know the love of the Father, I, didn't, I, I don't know what I would stuff that with. I don't. But John says in, in chapter 3, Behold what manner of love the Father has given us that we should be called his children. For God so loved the world that he gave his son so that you and I wouldn't love the things of this world. We'd hate the things of this world and the world system, and we'd love him. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would um, understand how much our hearts just crave the Father's love because we were made for that love. And that no thing or person or spouse or sport or achievement or career could even come close to filling that ache or that hole. But you, Father, your love, when it enters us, God, it not only fills it, but our life is overflowed. And I 
pray today that anyone who doesn't know your love, the love of the Father, how much you just love us and delight in us and cherish us, that you would open the eyes of our heart to see that and that our hearts would be healed. In Jesus' name.